Welcome to Writer's Radio. I'm Carol Harmon, your host for Surviving Conquest, the final of a three-part series, Dead and Alive, Living with Ancestors. This series has been a collaboration between Writer's Radio and the online literary journal, Dark Matter, Women Witnessing, edited by Lisa Weil. The previous two programs focused on efforts of authors Cynthia Travis and Sharon English through prayer and ritual to counteract negative consequences of misuse of the land. Although far apart in subject matter, the two readings in this episode spring from devastation wrought by the conquest of North America. Jillian Goslinga is a cultural anthropologist an award-winning ethnographic filmmaker who recently moved to the Rio Verde Valley in Arizona, near the Mexican border. She writes of the land and house she moved to, and her discovery of its traumatic history, which mirrors her own. She writes of her efforts to rebalance dark energies she encountered on this property. Healing with Land and Ancestors Trouble with the Land Three times I walked away from the little house for sale, perched on the side of the mesa, whose crown had long ago been a Pueblo settlement, one of many dotting mesas in the Verde Valley of Arizona. On drive by one, I had seen a dark cloud hovering above the cute little house and entire road. I turned around and drove off. On drive-by two six months later, I parked at the mouth of the street, wondering what energy had slapped my crown as soon as I had made the turn. What was wrong with this place when everything should be right? The location was fantastic. The views of the green belt of Oak Creek and Sedona's famed red rocks in the distance were sweeping. The word meth sprang up in my vision. I turned around and drove off. Then my new realtor... Yet another six months later took me to that land to see that cute little house. The house was built for a chemically sensitive person like you, she said. This third time I walked away from a contract. The house was riddled with issues and there was mold, another of my health nemeses, in the bathroom. Its front door location reversed the feng shui luck of the house. And then, compelled by a force that felt to me like a death wish and went against every fiber of my physical being, I entered a second contract at an adjusted price only a month later. The night I signed the deed transfer, a friend of mine had to drive me to the emergency room, my blood pressure skyrocketing so high I thought my head was going to blow off. And there I was the morning after, financially locked into this place of darkness. Why had I signed? What I had signed up for? My Sedona New Age friends had gone from it's an amazing vortex of light to this will be your last battle with darkness, and you're going to have to learn to love more than you fear. I didn't feel capable of that kind of love. My mother, to complicate matters, and all the way from Spain where she lives, had had her first ever vision of the Virgin Mary over the Mesa ruins above the house, not once but twice, as I was wavering atrociously in those final days. I had a powerful dream, too, where I walked the slope of the mesa as wild animals have for millennia, crisscrossing their narrow footpaths up to the top. 
a retinue of creatures gathered behind me, Pied Piper-like in the dream. My body entered the earth, half in, half out. I continued to walk as though through water, except it was beautiful, soft, fragrant, moist, rich, composted earth. Behind me, the air turned to fairy dust, a brilliant, sparkling cloud of twinkling starlight that brought every tree, every boulder, and every creature to shimmering life. There had been terrifying visions as well. In a full moon sweat lodge, after I'd entered the second contract, where I furiously prayed for some sort of sign as to what to do, I was given a vision of a gigantic black snake with a design of red and white diamonds unfurling on its back. It lay upright and etherically on the slope of the mesa, like one of those enormous city letters that greet airplanes from the sky. The snake's tail touched the back porch of the house where a skeleton lady appeared, looking straight up. She cut a Frida Kaloesque figure with her ash-colored bones adorned with red ribbons, and her hair also tied up with red ribbons piled on top of her skull. In her bony hands, she held a bundle of smaller bones and herbs wrapped in red cloth. Bone Lady smiled at me, but my reaction was visceral and unhappy. I screamed and retched in the lodge, purging violently. As I wobbled out at the close, frightened and spent, the full moon greeted me like a benevolent grandmother. I welcomed her bath of sweet, pure silver light. Impervious to human affairs, the moon loves without condition. I pledged to her that terrible night that I would not buy. Curses and death poisoned that land and house. I was sure of it now. And yet, inexplicably, and only a week later, I found myself signing the deed. This was madness. And the sins of the fathers shall be revisited upon the sons. Death that violently breaks the continuity and bonds of life wilds the land, writes the late cultural anthropologist Deborah Bird Rose, following the teachings of her Australian Aboriginal mentors. Deborah names as one of the deadliest legacies of Christian settler colonialism a ground zero phenomenological orientation towards life, where the present is wiped clean of what has come before. Just as Jesus Christ, the Savior's birth, reset time to zero for the Christians. Like the first peoples of my valley, the Verde Valley of Arizona, Aboriginals had survived near genocide, witnessing their lands go wild with grief and the scattered bones of their loved ones strewn about unburied, the past unable to compost into new generational becomings. When my systemic constellation group decided to explore the unbearable tension that I felt in my house and on the land, what emerged was the aftermath of a massacre, but unexpectedly, the period was not settler colonialism, as I had long speculated, but the arrival in the Valley of Spanish Conquistadors. They had come following the ancient Palatquapi Hopi Trail in search of coin in nearby traditional Indian mines in the Mingus Mountains, and their brutality was the first of many original sins to shatter life in the Verde Valley. No wonder the broken pottery sherds dotting the side of my mesa stopped abruptly in the 1500s. No wonder my mother had had a vision of the Virgin Mary above the mesa top, and Christians had buried two of their dead on it. A trauma fractal appeared in the constellation for the Spanish soldiers, too, many of whom had been conscripted from Spanish prisons to fight in the new colonies. 
These wretched men had apparently been left to die on the land side by side with the Pueblo people and without Catholic rites of absolution that would have redeemed their sins of pillage and rape and guaranteed entry into their heaven. Their wild rage at being passed over by their Lord priests and the wild rage and grief of the Pueblo people whose way of life had come to bad death also filled the room palpably. The woman who had stood in for the land reported the same unsettling hum in her body that coursed through mine whenever at my house or on the land. On my father's side, there were even greater generational wrongs to be redressed. As Dutch colonialists, their trauma fractal goes deep into the heart of Africa, the killing of natives, sexual violence, and slave trading. My immediate family had been colonial administrators in the Dutch Caribbean, and the secrets had been many. There was a hidden family with a slave descendant that came to light decades later, and in the family itself, my father's youngest and seventh sibling was born black. The family had set up house in old slave quarters on humanistic grounds. My grandfather became a scholar of Dutch colonialism, exhaustively documenting Dutch brutalities and an early version of settler colonial historical critique. Working in West Africa at the end of the colonial period, my young father, in his own blind redress of sorts, had emerged as a vocal advocate for Africans to his oil bosses in Congo, Nigeria, and Senegal. And then, jettisoning his promising career at 33, he walked away from these bosses to help the newly independent Algeria establish her national oil industry free of Western interests. He worked with Russians instead of Americans. He was blacklisted. Inside the family, though, the fractal of colonial oppression and sexual violence raged on, as did cruel, shaming, paternalistic governance and the murder of life. In a twisted reenactment on his own children of the brutality of his ancestors, my father ordered the termination of two of my mother's pregnancies, one before me and one after. My own life was decided at his mercy. My younger and only brother was the one child both had committed to at conception. This explained my insane jealousy of him. At just three, I had knownly pushed his pram downstairs in a bid to get rid of him. No wonder I had been magnetized like moth to flame to a property beneath native Mesa ruins, haunted, like me, by a history of colonial trauma and war, religious dogma, and bad death. Like my body, the land had been holding accursed ancestral energies, forcing a repeat of trauma fractals in the present, because life knows no ground zeros. We conclude with an episode from my own piece, Buffalo Spirit Roams This Land. My piece is linked to Jillian's through the violence and greed of our human ancestors in conquering and settling North America. It concerns our relationship with another species, the buffalo or plains bison, a species which was driven to the brink of extinction in the 19th century as a means to claim land and eradicate and control indigenous North Americans. 
Both pieces highlight attempts to mitigate the outcome of these events. One summer day in 2017, I run into my old pal Charlie on Banff Avenue when I'm passing through town. Banff is a small town within Banff National Park in the Canadian Rockies. Let's get a coffee, Charlie, I say, taking his arm. In the old days, we'd have gone to his hangout, Jeannie Ang's Rundle Restaurant. Now the Rundle is gone and it's a coffee shop on a side street, away from the crowds. We shuffle through the lineup, exchanging gossip. Charlie, what do you think of this proposed Buffalo Wilderness Reserve in Panther Valley? Charlie replies in his typically direct manner. To tell the truth, I don't rightly know what to think. It's a hell of an idea, but I don't see how it's going to work. We're discussing a wildly popular recent initiative of Parks Canada to reintroduce Plains Bison or Buffalo into remote areas of Banff National Park. Why wouldn't it work? There have been Buffalo in Elk Island and Wood Buffalo National Park for ages. This seems like a great idea to introduce them into the wild again. Charlie leans back and puts his boots on a chair, settling in to educate me. Here's a little bit of history. In 1907, Buffalo had their very own Buffalo National Park on Battle River near Wainwright, Alberta, right next to where they used to roam in the thousands. The government bought itself a herd of 700 buffalo from Flathead Indian Reserve in Montana to stock it since Indian Plains buffalo had already all been slaughtered. That herd kept growing. Every year, they had to shoot a bunch of buffalo to keep the herd within park boundaries. They closed the park down in 1940, and now it's a military reserve. So you're thinking the same thing will happen in Panther Valley? Yup. Buffalo like to breed, and buffalo like to roam. They've built natural fences to keep them contained, and the herd will expand into Dormer and Cascade Valleys. That's a lot of land. <sighs> Who's going to keep them buffalo from busting out onto the prairie when the herd gets bigger? There could be lots of buffalo again on the plains if we let them free, but I don't expect them buffalo are going to stay where they're told. I pull out my newspaper with Harvey Locke's interview about the project. Harvey is a well-known environmental activist who has been backing this project. Charlie, what do you think of this statement of Harvey's in the Craig? It rights the historical wrong of the elimination of this magnificent animal 
The return of bison to the landscape represents hope for nature and is an important step towards reconciliation with indigenous people. I can't see how one little herd in Panther Valley evens the score for 75 million buffalo slaughtered on the plains since the railway come. Plus all the other insults done to the engines as well. I hear say this scheme will cost six and a half million. Might be better to put buffalo on the reserves. You'll appreciate this story, Charlie. I just finished reading Michael Crummy's Sweetland. A character in his novel tells this true story. When Joey Smallwood was premier, his government tried to introduce buffalo into Newfoundland. The idea was to give them their own island so they would become a source of food for Newfoundlanders. They loaded two bulls and 16 young cows into boxcars in Alberta, shipped them across Canada, then barged them by schooner to Brunette Island in Fortune Bay off the coast. They moved people off Brunette Island to make way for those buffalo. A third of the buffalo died on the trip across Canada. The biggest bull tipped the barge crossing the bay and nearly drowned. Charlie snorts through tears of laughter. Governments just can't stop moving critters about. I hand Charlie a napkin, then continue. The first winter, the buffalo wandered out on the cliffs to nibble the grass and lick salt off the rocks slipped on the ice and toppled into the ocean. Their bones were found on the rocks in the spring. Charlie's no longer laughing. All of them died. That's right. We focus on our coffee. Charlie looks me in the eye. Hell, I can't rightly say why but I'm riled up about buffalo these days. They've been gone from the prairie so long you'd think no one would care. Remember Banff Indian days? Us kids would ride our bikes to the Indian grounds and play with the Indian kids, exchanged our bikes for their horses. It were downright wrong of the government to kick Indians out of the national parks. I remind him, the Indian grounds is on unceded land. It's Stony Nakoda land. You know, Charlie, there are little pockets of unceded land all through the mountain national parks. Charlie scratches his head. Hell, I wish them buffalo well. Injuns, too. No point in complaining. Maybe they'll let Injuns back in the park next. I finish my coffee. Charlie pays the bill. If there's one thing don't last forever, it's government policy. Charlie tips his hat to me as he leaves.
I wonder what my friend John White, poet, environmentalist, and historian, who died in 1992, would have made of the Buffalo Rewilding Project. So I conjure him. A diaphanous form quivers over Deception Pass near Skokie in the Canadian Rockies. The ghost of John White shivers into view. This was one of John's favorite places when he came with family and friends over and over, staying at Skokie Lodge. John loved to make sweeping turns on his cross-country skis from Deception Pass down Bunker Hill, then long gliding strides through the valley to Skokie Lodge. Each spring his ghost returns, called back by fond memories of family ski trips. His tenacious spirit won't let go of his corporeal mountain life. John's famous aunt and uncle, Catherine and Pete White, were artists and the first caretakers of Skokie Lodge when it opened in 1932, back and beyond Lake Louise in Banff National Park. Today, John is on his way to rendezvous with another ghost. He skims carpets of golden avalanche lilies and tiny white spring beauty, which bloom among snow patches and fill newly opened meadows. He glides along Skokie Creek, which meanders from its glacial source over smooth red and green stones among large trees which sprout tufts of spring green needles and minute red blossoms. Past the lodge, John's ghost plunges down steep rapids through a gorge to Moose Meadow. He skirts Skokie Mountain to arrive at his rendezvous on the shore of Red Deer Lake. A shiver in the air interrupts the peaceful scene in Red Deer Valley. The massive form of a ghost buffalo wavers along the shoreline, stopping to admire plentiful tufts of grasses it can no longer munch. Ghost of Massive Sir Donald, the last plains buffalo in North America to be born in the wild, shudders to a stop before John. Sir Donald, John's ghost greets him. John White, the ghost buffalo replies. Sir Donald was born near Battleford, Saskatchewan, in the wild, before he was named for his purchaser, Sir Donald Smith, Lord Strathcona. This buffalo had already spent most of his life in captivity. Lord Strathcona purchased, then donated, the massive bull to Canada's first conservation herd of Plains buffalo, which was established in Banff National Park in 1897. Sir Donald died in captivity in the 300-acre buffalo paddock in Banff National Park in 1909. First ostracized from the herd, then gored to death by younger bulls. I wasn't sure if my proposal would interest you, John says to Sir Donald. 
Sir Donald ponders his reply. Did you know I was living in a penitentiary near Battleford when Lord Strathcona bought me? I was the last Wild Plains buffalo, but I died in captivity in a national park. Don't you find that ironic? It's a romantic idea, releasing buffalo in the mountains, but valleys are corrals, mountains fences. You don't mention any plans to return buffalo to the plains. The valleys connect, John reassures him. This valley is a good example. It's not in the management plan for the herd, but buffalo would love living here. Grass shimmers as Sir Donald hoofs the earth in thought. Buffalo aren't naturally rebellious. They have to be led or provoked, he muses. That's why I summoned you, urges John. You experience life in the wild and captivity. What better spirit to guide the herd? Sir Donald looks long and hard at John. His phantom eyes seem to look left and right, and yet John feels them drill through him. What's in it for you, John White? You have been listening to Gillian Goslinga and Carol Harmon, readers in part three of the series Dead and Alive, Living with Ancestors. Many thanks to editor Lisa Weil and her team of writers and editors. The first two episodes, River of Kin and An Unprecedented Level of Imagination, A Call from Barry Lopez, are now podcasts on the Writer's Radio website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Writer's Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays, and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website, writersradio.ca, to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishel Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship. Thank you.